When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Trey Sessler? who is also known as Mr. Anime. This case involves homicides that were committed in 2012. First, I'll start with the background of Trey Sessler. I'll move to the timeline of those crimes. Then I'll offer my analysis. Trey Sessler was born on August 3, 1989. In 2012, at the time of the crime, he was 22 years old. He lived with his 58-year-old father, Lawton, his 57-year-old mother, Rhonda, and his 26-year-old brother, Mark, in Waller, Texas. Lawton was a schoolteacher, and Rhonda worked for a newspaper. Trey had graduated from high school and was attending college. He was getting into arguments with his father because he did not have a full-time job or stable employment. Trey had worked a number of part-time jobs. He worked in grocery stores, a campground, a pizza shop, an ice cream shop, a gas station, and a go-kart track. When Trey was around 16, he started posting videos to YouTube. Eventually, he would have 323 videos on that platform. He called himself Mr. Anime. Most of his videos were anime reviews. Over time, he started adding some comedic videos and other types of videos where he would be holding or firing guns. He had collected a number of firearms. Trey developed an interest in both mass and serial killers. Two weeks before the murders, Trey called the police and said that he was sitting in his backyard and a bullet whizzed by his head. He told them that he had his guns ready. The police investigated but didn't find anything out of the ordinary. Now we move to March 20, 2012, just after midnight at the Sessler family home in Waller, Texas. Trey's mother and brother were awake and his father was asleep. Trey asked his mother if she could come out to look at his vehicle which was parked in the garage of the home. When she did so, Trey shot her to death with a 22 caliber rifle. His brother Mark said, I don't know what you're doing out there, but it's really loud. Without saying a word, Trey walked to his own room and retrieved a Glock semi-automatic pistol chambered in 9mm. He walked into the hallway and pointed the weapon at Mark before firing twice, striking Mark both times. 
Mark managed to get into the bathroom. He closed the door and locked it. The 9mm gunshots woke up Trey's father. He asked what was going on. Trey entered his father's room and shot him twice with the pistol. Trey then went back to the bathroom where Mark was and started shooting through the door. He shot the lock on the door and kicked it open. He found his brother dead on the floor. Trey then retrieved an AR-15. This is a rifle chambered in 223 caliber. He went back to the garage and shot his mother twice, even though he was fairly sure that she was dead. He returned to the bathroom and shot his brother in the head before making his way into the bedroom and shooting his father again. Now that he was confident they were all dead, Trey left voicemail messages with the employers of his mother and father, informing the employers that they would be missing work. At some point, either before or after he left those voicemail messages, Trey went through the entire house and ransacked it. He killed his pet ferret with a 22 caliber rifle, he killed his father's birds, and he shot two fish tanks, which killed the fish. He also broke the oven door off at his hinges, threw the contents of the refrigerator on the floor, shattered a glass-topped coffee table, removed items out of kitchen drawers and cabinets, stabbed the cabinets with knives, and destroyed many other items in the house. The police would later describe the house as a war zone. Trey went back into the garage and went to sleep next to his mother's body. The police visited the home after family members could not get in touch with Trey's parents. They found the bodies. Trey was arrested two days later. He confessed right away. He would eventually be convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now moving to my analysis. We see two very different portraits of Trey Sussler described by people who knew him. Some people, mostly family members and friends, found him to be intelligent, outgoing, positive, but perhaps a little peculiar. Other people, like neighbors, found Trey to be odd, bizarre, creepy, and dangerous. One neighbor even predicted Trey would commit homicide. It's not really clear why Trey developed what many believe are psychopathic characteristics. He did not have a traumatic childhood. He was not considered to be a loner. He was not bullied in school. He was not rejected by women, or at least if he was, it didn't seem to bother him. Trey's parents may have been a little bit too permissive, like they gave him everything he wanted. For example, they allowed him to live at home, and he was also permitted to stay at another house his mother owned in Hempstead, Texas. She had inherited that from her parents. As far as transportation, his parents bought him a brand new Mustang and paid his speeding tickets. Permissiveness may not be the most appropriate parenting style, but it rarely leads to murder. Trey developed a substance use problem early in life. This may have played a part. It was reported that he was drinking right before the murders. He periodically used a number of different substances. Some of them were prescribed, like Seroquel and Xanax. Others were not, like cannabis, methamphetamine, and Oxycontin. Even though, of course, Oxycontin can be prescribed, and most of the time when people use it, it is, he obtained it illegally. Trey had an intense interest in firearms. He had bought and sold 20 or 30 different guns in the two years prior to the murders. He would often buy and sell them, trade them. Sometimes he would pawn them for money to buy drugs and then buy them back when he earned more money. He owned about six firearms at the time of the murders. He would regularly walk around the house wearing or carrying a loaded firearm. 
Trey developed an interest in homicide from a young age. His first plan was formulated when he was 13. He did not have a firearm, so he planned on attacking a police officer to get one. Then he was going to carry out an attack on another person. The plan landed him in trouble with the authorities. The police never pursued charges, but Trey was evaluated by a mental health clinician. He would go on to develop many more plans over the next several years. Some involved the use of firearms. Others involved him running people over with his vehicle. He also created plans that involved a combination of both. So he would use his vehicle to move into a public area, then he would start shooting. After he was permitted to live alone in the house in Hempstead, Texas for a while, he started learning about killers. Some of the information was from documentaries. Trey knew every detail of the 1999 attack at Columbine. He had watched a documentary on that topic about 50 times. He knew the times when people were shot, the names of the victims, the weapon that was used, whether they were injured or killed. He was fascinated with that crime. His knowledge of serial killers was also extensive. He knew about the crimes of killers like David Berkowitz and Ted Bundy. Among the many ways that serial killers cause harm is that they are not good role models. I think that they don't really get accused of being bad role models because that's too far in the list of all the terrible things they've done. Like, no one approaches a serial killer and says, you killed all those people, you monster, and by the way, you're an awful role model. It just gets kind of lost in the magnitude of the other offenses. Clearly, though, setting one's sights on serial killers as role models is not a good sign. Trey was exhibiting clearly destructive behavior here, but as with many things in his life, this behavior seemed to go unmonitored. He studied serial killers to see where they made mistakes, to find areas where he could do it better without being caught. He aspired to be a serial killer, but felt that he had too much anxiety to engage in a cooling down period between murders. He pictured himself as sitting around the house waiting to be arrested at any second. He couldn't tolerate the anxiety of that image. This pushed him to focus more on killings of a mass type. He had been planning on an attack on the public for four years. This was his main plan. As Trey tried to develop into a killer, he took several steps to train himself and test himself. For example, when he was living at the house in Hempstead, he would drive around the community at night and shoot various targets, like the windows of a church, abandoned buildings, a high school, a library, and a hardware store. He engaged in arson as well, including setting fire to an unoccupied structure. At some point, he started shooting at livestock, like cows. He became extremely paranoid that he was going to be caught for that offense. He placed motion sensor alarms on every door in that house and installed cameras, but none of the cameras were connected. At one point, he even rigged a shotgun so it would fire when somebody opened his bedroom door. He took that down, however, because he was worried that his parents would visit the house and they would be shot. Trey killed a kitten at the house in Hempstead, kicking it multiple times before shooting it with a shotgun. He buried it in the backyard. He would later tell the police that he was remorseful for that crime. It hit him immediately afterward, instantly upsetting him. Even though Trey had planned his main attack for a long time, the one he did not complete. He denied that the murder of his family was planned far in advance. 
He said he only came up with the idea about a half hour before the murders. He claimed that he wanted to spare them the suffering that would occur when he was arrested for the main crime against the public. As far as mental health and personality, there's no information about what mental health diagnoses may or may not have been assigned to Trey Sessler. We know he was being treated by a mental health clinician, and as I mentioned before, he was taking Seroquel, which is an atypical antipsychotic. This has led some people to speculate about something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but again, there's no information about his mental health available. It's impossible to know what disorder someone has just from the medication they're taking. A number of people, including the police, have said that Trey must be psychopathic. He had a number of psychopathic characteristics, including being deceptive, having a lack of empathy, and engaging in criminal behavior repeatedly. Trey may also have been sadistic and narcissistic. He killed small animals and set fires, two characteristics commonly observed in individuals who go on to commit multiple homicides. In addition, he fantasized about being a hero and was self-centered. What really stands out with this theory about Trey being psychopathic is that he was also quite anxious. People with anxiety are less likely to carry out the types of crimes that Trey committed, exactly because of the reason that Trey stated, the concern over being surprised by an arrest, the fear. People with anxiety have trouble tolerating that tension. They don't want to be startled. Yet even with his anxiety, Trey was capable of the crimes he committed. What's more, he desperately wanted to be a killer. It wasn't like he was really fighting the urge. He was actually trying to manage his anxiety so he could be a killer. It was almost like two opposing forces, psychopathy pulling him in one direction and anxiety pulling him in another. He wanted the psychopathy to win. The same thing could have happened with his feelings of remorse. As he was working toward his goal of being a killer, he noticed that he was having problems with feelings of remorse, guilt, and shame. He kept practicing to overcome those feelings. We see that right after the murders, Trey used a marker and wrote various statements down all over the house, like on the walls, on doors, and on the refrigerator. Here are just a few things he wrote. I love God and my family. What have I done? I love my brother, mother, and father. Forgive me. I will never forgive myself. I don't know why I did this. God help me and help me someone. Statements like these make people wonder if something wasn't happening with psychosis. But there are other potential explanations. It may have been just his way of expressing remorse. These statements make it seem as if he did something against his will, like he was conflicted. The last area I want to discuss is about warning signs. There were a number in this case. I think his family just wanted the best for him, and maybe they were not prepared to face what was really going on with his mental health. I find it interesting that both his father and his brother told people something to the effect of they should not be surprised if Trey murders all of them. Just a few days before the murders, Trey Sessler himself reached out for help. He texted his mother asking her to schedule an appointment for him to see a mental health professional. His parents clearly had concerns. They had asked him at one point to reduce the number of guns that he owned. I mentioned before that he had bought, sold, and traded a number of them all the time. They essentially suggested he should just go ahead and sell all of them, bring the number he owned down to zero. They were also not happy about him walking around the house 
with loaded guns. I think this was probably one of those situations where putting down firm boundaries would have been a better move, especially considering the mental health factors that may have been at work. Trey was given all the freedom he needed to do whatever he felt like. His parents just seemed to be hoping that he wasn't having any bad thoughts. Trey needed more supervision. He needed rules, boundaries, and of course, more consistent mental health treatment. Instead, he was given freedom, a car, a place to live alone, and weapons, as well as being denied the consequences for his behavior. I think sometimes what happens is that families don't want to see the potential danger in somebody that they believe they know. A better way to evaluate threats would be to think about the appropriate reaction if that person was a stranger. They might have seen the behavior like setting fires, killing animals, planning to attack a police officer, manifesting a parasitic lifestyle, and drug use as concerning and warranting an appropriate intervention. In one sense, Trey was asking for help, and his pleas were repeatedly ignored. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Allegedly is back for season two, a new crime every time. In each episode of Allegedly, you'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season 2's stories include a young woman finding salvation in God, only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult, a case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her, a landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner, an act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos, and a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out. New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.